Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, I do have choice words about how the U.S. got bounced from the World Cup, but we're going to start in these dog days of summer by talking NBA draft, one of my favorite topics, particularly the 2003 NBA draft. That draft is regarded as perhaps the best in NBA history, along with 1984 and 1996. 1984 was the draft of Jordan, Elijahwan, Barkley, Stockton. That's just amazing if you think about that for a second. 1996 was Kobe, Iverson, Ray Allen, and Steve Nash, four first ballot Hall of Famers. In 2003, you had, of course, LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh, and the great Carmelo Anthony. Now, all these drafts contain what-ifs. What if Portland, instead of Chicago, had selected Jordan is the most famous example of that. But there are few what-ifs that have generated more discussion than the order of the first three picks in the 2003 draft. One, you had, of course, LeBron to Cleveland. Two, a 17-year-old named Darko Milicic to Detroit. And then three, Carmelo Anthony coming off an NCAA National Championship and winning the Wooden Award as the most outstanding college player in the nation. So Detroit won the championship that season, 2003-2004, with Milicic effectively not playing and earning the nickname the Human Victory Cigar. Carmelo became, in my opinion, a kind of aimless scorer throughout his career. And he had a Hall of Fame career, but for me, now that he's retired, I have to be honest, it leaves me feeling like it was a little bit less than it could have been. In other words, I really wish I could have seen Carmelo with his incredible clutch gene, and it is incredible, uh, in the NBA Finals, but we never got to see that. So on this week's show, I'm bringing in a basketball savant who has been on the show in the past, Arya Shirazi, to talk what if. Call this show the Basketball Butterfly Effect episode. What if Anthony had been picked instead of Milicic at number two? What would the flapping of those butterfly wings have produced over the last two decades? Let's find out. Bringing in Arya Shirazi for this discussion. Arya, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Dave. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me again. How was that sum up before we start? Do you think that I, gives us a nice basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you captured the spirit of our topic and our thought process perfectly. So let's start like this. Um, people look at this now, the most basic question I want to ask you, and say, Carmelo Anthony, Darko who? Why in the blue hell would Detroit not take the great Carmelo Anthony instead of drafting somebody whose name we do not know. That's what a casual fan would certainly say. I mean, it's a really bold statement in 2023 to say Darko was the consensus number two. What was so great about Darko? I think it comes down, and I don't know if this has lessened in the 20 years or, or if it's actually just as prevalent, but uh, measurements and physical gifts, uh, tend to play a huge role in the evaluation process of young prospects, especially basketball prospects. Unlike football, uh, I feel as though most top football players uh, spend two, if not three years in college playing at the highest level of college football and also having a chance to grow physically from the time they enter college uh, as a freshman and then after playing two or three years of, of major college football and the weight training and preparedness that goes into that, basketball doesn't have that. As a matter of fact, whether you're a one and dunner or an international phenom, uh, most top NBA lot, uh, picks are taken between the ages of 18 and 20. And certainly as opposed to the prevailing uh, feeling in our day, uh, when you know uh, for top NBA draft picks now it's almost felt like if you're not entering the draft by the time you're 20 uh, you've kind of peaked already or you're not really a uh, you know going to be a foundational piece that is is frequently proven in true and I don't think that that is a, a very sustainable model of thought 
uh, for players that young and that inexperienced. But uh, but still, what it comes down to is that you had two players, one of whom was untested even in European ball, the other in his one year proved himself to be uh, a a go-to player and a winner mm-hmm. uh, 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 on the on the highest level of D1 ball. Uh, But I think what you had when the GMs whose teams were picking at the top of that draft, you had one player who was taller, younger, and more athletic. And And even to this day, that trifecta in a way is the prototype uh, that, uh, that that GMs are looking for when acquiring a player who they're hoping or expecting will be a foundational piece of a winner for that franchise. So you had Carmelo, who is is, is the prototype small forward, six eight, but with a body that can handle contact. Uh, yeah. a a five tool score. If there are five tools of scoring, he has them all. Can create his own shot can take the ball off the dribble, can finish with contact in traffic, uh, can shoot with range, could pull up. uh, uh, And Mello's scoring game in college wound up transferring to the NBA instantly. Instantly. And and, and we will get to, to, to that in a second. But you had Mello and his stature in his resume and then you had a 17-year-old Serbian kid with frosted tips who is stood seven foot one and was a freak athlete. I think the bustitude of Darko over 20 years, and especially the careers that Carmelo, Chris Bosch and Dwayne Wade then forged in that time, including some of their greatest accomplishments occurring after Darko was long out of the league, kind of adding insult to injury to the whole thing, uh, is that Darko, with the exception of having proven production, <laughs> uh, which could be excused because he was 17, Darko is almost a dream. I mean, as yeah. I said, this his physical gifts have been lost over the past two decades. And he's now, if he, especially if you look at his career stats, he's thought of pretty much as a big European stiff. But watching him play, he absolutely was not stiff. For a guy seven foot one, he could run and jump uh, like very, very few players mm-hmm. his size and since could move, which is what tantalized uh, general managers and scouts on the pro level. And in a workout setting, which, as we know, is not the high-intensity gameplay, uh, uh, it is designed to showcase and highlight y- uh, young draft uh, young players' strengths. Uh, Darko was killing it in workouts. You know, he was he was handling the ball well enough for a seven footer, uh, and then fi- uh, finishing with a whirly bird. And I think neck and I think teams drafting behind Cleveland were saying, uh, you, you know, we might be able to find another small forward who can score twenty a game, maybe even twenty five a game. But are we going to get castigated, rightfully so, for passing by on a 17-year-old, seven-foot-one freak athlete? So that uh, was really the thought process going into that draft. So when Darko's name was called two, uh, it was not, shockwaves were not sent. It was going according to what just about every draft expert had uh, had been predicting. Is that the way you remember it as well? Absolutely. And I also remember that there were people who were like, whoa, you know, quite a roll of the dice to take a 17-year-old over the best NCAA player uh, in the world, in the country. Uh, but they also always said, and this does lead into the next topic of conversation, they said, look, the Detroit Pistons barely lost in the NBA Finals in 2003. They can afford 
to take a flyer on this kid because they have such a great team. A lot of people said great culture. So 2004 happens, Larry Brown's Detroit team, of course, and that year they do break through and win the title. Uh, interestingly, without one player, and I know, I think Ben Wallace squeaked in recently, but they, this, that was it. that's the only team in NBA history without a slam dunk Hall of Famer to win a title, NBA history. Only, only team, to me, I've, I, I, that, 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 that's, my, that's my opinion about that team. Um, they win a title that year, as I said. Let's talk butterfly effect. Can you say, do you think with certainty, whether they win or don't win the title that year, if they take Carmelo and not this young kid who barely plays? I think, Dave, that is a crucial point and a crucial uh background to what was occurring uh, in the league and with that team at that time. You're absolutely right. Detroit, as you said, was a title contender. They had come up short under Rick Carlisle uh, and then had had made the surprising move based on how quickly he had grown that team to right. being a 50 plus win team and and trying to represent the East in the finals. It was surprising when Detroit decided to make an upgrade, as they called it, and, and bring and brought in Larry Brown to replace Carlisle. But uh, as you were saying completely correct correctly, the Pistons in 2003 were far from the typical team drafting number two. Uh, based uh, because of a convoluted trade a few years earlier that they were the uh, beneficiaries of, they, uh, with a 50-win team, they wound up with the number two pick, so they absolutely could afford to draft based on potential. Uh, uh, and stash Darko uh, while uh, growing him, which did not happen, which I think was one of the crucial uh, elements in what his NBA career became, the fact that he both didn't play and was not uh, groomed to be a future star or future NBA center, but also uh, Darko's development was not going to derail Detroit's championship hopes, which ended in a championship that year. So uh, the uh, uh, one of the many interesting questions is, uh, what if Denver had picked number two instead of Detroit? What if Cleveland had one, Denver had two, uh, Detroit had had three, let's say. Would Denver, who was a team coming out of the lottery and who incidentally, the addition of Carmelo immediately made them a playoff team in the West. You know, this can snowball into a completely other topic, but I was of the mind uh, in 2004 uh, that even though I didn't think he was going to be the better player, I thought Carmelo was certainly the NBA's rookie of the year that year for being the go-to guy on what had been a horrendous Denver team and, and making a very surprising run to the Western Conference Finals when the West was unquestionably the stronger and deeper of the two conferences, while, while LeBron, putting up fantastic numbers from day one, wasn't able to take a Cavaliers team in a weaker East to the playoffs until his third year in the league. So Mello uh, had the ball put in his hands on a lottery team and immediately transformed them into a team on the rise. Uh, uh, whereas, whereas Darko became, as you know, was the uh, often ridiculed 12th man on a team that made uh, a surprising run to the uh, to the championship. So again, the you know the, the one of the many interesting what ifs is had the draft order been reversed, would Denver have drafted for potential and taken Darko, or or did they immediately recognize Melo as the more ready NBA player, and would they have made the call with him over two? 
that, you know, uh, of course, like many other things, we'll never know. But you bring up a very crucial point when you said Detroit, unlike most lottery teams, had the luxury of drafting for the future while uh, while being able to play for the present. And it also raises the question about how Darko may have developed in Denver uh, without the pressure of being the human victory cigar and all and being 17. And, and obviously Detroit's not a huge media market, but given the profile of the team, it was huge Detroit at that time, like regular nationally televised games, like maybe in Denver, his life is different. But getting back to like, do the Pistons win that 04 title? with rookie Carmelo absolutely in the rotation, because he absolutely, in my opinion, would have played himself into that rotation, whether people would, you know, whether people like Tayshawn Prince would have been upset by that. And I love Tayshawn Prince. Carmelo, even as a rookie, is taking minutes. Fact. Does that mess up that team? And does it mess up something that you raised with me, credit where credit's due, a certain mid-season trade that was vital to the Pistons championship. Dave, I think if Detroit takes Carmelo Anthony number two, NBA history has changed at the highest level mm. in many, many different directions. Carmelo, in my opinion, steps in as the Pistons starting small forward. Wow. He's that, I mean, he is that good. You're right. Uh, you know, he, uh, the minute he hit the league, he was one of the top 20 scorers in the league. That's who Mello was. That's who he remained throughout the majority of his lengthy, uh, uh, impressive career. Uh, so, yes, I think Mello immediately steps into the starting lineup. Mello um, immediately becomes the number one option. I think uh, another guy who had a great career, an NBA shooting guard who I love, Richard Hamilton, uh, was never the scorer Mello was. Never. Was never the scorer. Yeah. So I yeah. think Rip instantly would have been the number two player. Chauncey, uh, who, you know, Mr. Big Shot, the kind of the team MVP, uh, the soul of that team. And really it was his role, of course, on the Pistons, but his role as the point guard and leader of that kind of egalitarian Pistons, breaking down that role that you have to have one or two superstars and winning the, the championship in the most triumphant uh, yeah. kind of democratic way. That happened chiefly because they didn't have a franchise score. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the midseason acquisition of Rashid Wallace, which, uh, you know, which proved to be uh, the final piece of the puzzle and one that without, uh, I believe the Pistons do not win the title, might not even get there, do not make it to the championship the next year. Rashid plays as big a role in that team's success as anybody else. And if they have Mello, uh, then the entire season is different. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire, uh, you know, I, 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 can't even begin to say what happens after 50 games or whatever when the decision is made to acquire Rashid, but it is a different season. You mentioned Tayshawn Prince, who uh, almost by necessity steps into that fifth starter role, proves to be the perfect fifth starter for those other four guys, and forges a fantastic career based on the role that he created in his first season or two in Detroit. That becomes who Tayshawn Prince is. With Carmelo Anthony there, uh, maybe he shifts to a tall, skinny power forward role. With Melo in the lineup, Tayshawn's defensive versatility becomes even more important. Uh, you don't know, you don't, you know, he doesn't even just have to cover up for Rip. He also has to cover up for Melo also. But I I don't see a scenario where they acquire Rashid. They have right. Carmelo. It is a different, everything about the progression of that season would turn out differently with a franchise piece like Carmelo Anthony being uh, inserted into the middle of that already above average team. So yes, NBA history is changed and in all likelihood, 
the Los part of the pleasure and joy for me and many people I know at that time of Detroit winning the championship was the Lakers team that they beat. The 04 Lakers was Shaq's last year on the Lakers. So it was his last year playing with Kobe. It was supposed to be Phil Jackson's last go round because of Shaq's exit. He takes a one year hiatus and then comes back and wins two more rings. That's Phil. That's Phil's legacy. So, uh, right away we're saying phil jackson's legacy is impacted by the by the pistons choosing darko instead of mellow but that laker team was as built to win a championship as any team has been constructed you had feuding Shaq and kobe with over it phil and you added gary payton and carl malone to the mix that Kobe couldn't stand because Carl Malone hit on Kobe's uh, wife. Right, right. All uh, sorts of just weirdness and ugliness meant that this very talented team looked just absolutely miserable during the finals. The more Detroit sort of chopped away at them. They had no heart in the face of the relentless defensive pressure that Detroit was, was operating with, even though they, I think they had the talent to do it, certainly. It just was it just was a very ugly scene. Here's a here's something for you, more of a statement, but I I, I want to get because we're talking butterfly effects. What do you think about this butterfly effect? If Carmelo goes to Detroit, he fights for the Eastern crown with LeBron for the next 10, 15 years, and they have a series of epic battles that we're still talking about right now. And the same way they did in high school, the same way they've already always had that friendly rivalry that was never brought to the pros. And that's a shame because that could have been really special Two Midwestern teams battling it out every year. I mean, so that's a butterfly effect too. We were kind of denied something that could have been generationally uh, important. No question about that. Uh, you know, I had just stated somewhat definitively that I believe Detroit would not have won in 2004 had they drafted Carmelo. Uh, and then whether it was the, you know, uh, whether it was the Lakers actually winning or another team uh, stepping into that spot in the East, uh, again, like the the history and the progression and reactionary moves uh, would have been completely different. So it is totally league altering. But I also believe that in the second half of that decade, Detroit is the team to beat. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm saying I don't think they win it in Carmelo's rookie season. But if you, uh, three, four years in, uh, into his career, if you have an already all-star Carmelo Anthony with Rip Hamilton, Chauncey Billups, and Ben Wallace, even if they likely don't wind up uh, acquiring Rashid, uh, I, I see no reason that there wouldn't be finals appearances, if not rings, for Detroit. Probably not with Larry Brown, because he doesn't stick around more than two or three years. Would it have been under Flip Saunders? Who knows? But I still say that that Detroit team has the has beyond the potential, has the roster to be the best team in the East and play for championships. What it does, the true kind of butterfly aspect is if it is not Larry Brown's Detroit team representing the East and it is uh, who opposes Shaq, Kobe, Peyton and Malone in the East. The number one uh, team that year was Indiana. Uh, uh, what wound up being, you know, coincidentally, Rick Carlisle's Indiana, oh. Indiana team. Uh, Detroit decides to upgrade with Larry Brown over Carlisle. So Indiana decides to upgrade with Rick Carlisle over Isaiah Thomas at the mm -hmm. head coaching position. So it actually, it was Carlisle's Pacers team led by Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest, 
who are the number one, who are the number one seed uh, in the East and are knocked off by Detroit. If that Indiana team goes to the finals again, I believe that 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 hands the championship to the Lakers. Yeah, I'd never felt that that Indiana team, in, even despite their strong system and their chemistry and their regular season wins, I did not see them as a championship, uh, as a championship team. So, uh, and and I feel that that for the reasons that you described earlier, I think the Pistons team that had arrived in the 2004 postseason was maybe the one team capable of totally throwing LA off and mm -hmm. exposing their weaknesses and really fracturing their chemistry. You had mentioned in, in that series in which, uh, which was truly a David and Goliath to use like a hackneyed cliche that I, I don't really like to use. Uh, but in this case, it really does apply when you look at the names and the payrolls the Lakers were the ultimate Goliath. Uh, it, was, it was a gentleman's sweep. Like if you remember that series, Kobe hits an impossible shot to win game one. Even get game, that win for LA. Yeah. In a game that Detroit outplayed LA, uh, Kobe steals it. And then Detroit's like, okay. And they just win the next four. Um, you're right. Which is incredible. You know I mean? Right, Detroit was such the better team. Mm -hmm. in the wonderful team sense of the word. But the Lakers had looked anything but ripe to be taken down. Their postseason run to make it to the championship that year uh, included knocking off what had been the, the team with the best team in the NBA, which was the Minnesota Timberwolves. It was Kevin Garnett's MVP season, the one season that he was kind of perched on top of the NBA world. Uh, it was the year that he was supported by uh, uh, well Zerbiak and Cassell, who I mm -hmm. think all stayed healthy. I mean, and it was just that, uh, you know, that was a team that seemed uh, built to possibly make a finals run. And in a conference finals where they where Minnesota had home court, the Lakers uh, were clearly the better team, which made Detroit's dismantling of them all the more welcome. Uh, all the more profound and certainly all the more surprising. So, uh, and in the wake of that, of that Pistons team, which then Flip Saunders assumes the reins from Larry Brown, from the culture and system that Larry created, uh, we get the Shaq and Dwayne Heat. Uh, we get uh, the premature finals appearance of the LeBron Cavs. I got and one. Oh, go ahead. Most crucially, I'm sorry, I'll shut up in a second. No, no, no. Most crucially, we get the Celtic super team, which yes. is, you know, which is, you know, which really comes out of Garnett's inability to overcome the Lakers with Minnesota. The Timberwolves feeling as though they were never going to duplicate that success and finally deciding to move Garnett. And then a t uh, the Celtics putting together a team that they that kind of forced the rest of the East to react to them, resulting in James going to Miami, which I feel like enters into the NBA era that we are still in. And Absolutely. these are all, you know, we don't need, these are actually small steps or big steps. I mean, it, we're not connecting a million dots. These are actually just kind of very basic signposts yeah. where if the Pistons don't add Rashid, don't enable Tayshawn to slide into that perfect role for him and for the team and add a player like Carmelo, which likely delays their trip to the top of the league for a few years, even if they might get that, what happens in the, in the interim totally changes what then uh, becomes the moves to the top of to the top of the league? Yeah, and I'll give you another butterfly effect. Uh, Larry Brown, by winning that title, becomes the only coach in history to win an NCAA and an NBA title, basically making his reputation. And what did he do with that reputation? Well, he proceeded to actually hurt his reputation by taking a mammoth amount of money from James Dolan 
and running the Knicks terribly and actually hurting his reputation greatly. But when you think about the utter hole that the Knicks have been in, I mean, it's littered by choices like this, like Larry Brown and then Phil Jackson. Oh, if we just get someone smart enough, it'll somehow overcome, you know, the James Dolan factor and it just never works. And then you've got Carmelo plays into this as well. Like this idea of needing to leave Detroit. I mean, I'm sorry, God, needing to leave uh, Denver and going to the Knicks. So the, and, and I'll, I'll say again, like, I think it opened the door for LeBron to dominate the way he did in the East. Like what if Carmelo stays, those other great players start to retire and Joe Dumars builds something good around Carmelo. Even if it's not a finals team, it's going to be throwing body blows at LeBron, body blows at those uh, Paul George Pacers teams. I mean, it, it, it would have been a much more exciting Eastern Conference and a ripple effect that would have affected the whole, the whole mythos of Larry Brown. I agree with, with everything that you were saying there. Uh, Larry certainly kind of built his ultimate reputation. Yeah, ultimate is a on good being, On being able to get that, uh, to obtain that NBA title in Detroit. And because of the makeup of the team, he is, I think, duly thought of as the architect. He was the coach. Uh, of the NBA team, which brought down a star-studded team without any superstars and brought them to the NBA title, somewhat altering, if not expanding, uh, how teams looked at what could uh, ultimately win a championship. So uh, Larry Brown's reputation uh, is changed, and... Uh, I think the East is completely different, as we've been talking about. The East, uh, the history of the East, the progression and the moves that were made by other Eastern teams to react to what was happening at the top of that conference for the next five to ten years are completely changed by Carmelo being in Detroit from the start. Uh, oh, I, I think that, that entire conference plays out completely different. The interesting thing is... Uh, and I'm not trying to, to, to open up a completely different rabbit hole, but if only those two picks are swapped and Denver then takes Darko, then it just means, yes, as you alluded to before, I believe Darko is not the bust and punchline that he is. He most likely has a career like Michael Oluwakandi, which mm. is not good, but is rarely, you know, you know, maybe, you know, a few game, a few seasons, where he where he puts up let's say 12 and 8 for lottery teams and then the numbers uh start start uh, decreasing as he uh, becomes more of a journeyman and loses even more interest but i think darko becomes a serviceable player for a few years uh with at least career stats that exceed Kwame Browns definitely and to, uh, to set the bar low yeah what it does change, I don't know if this means that the Lakers don't get Pow. They might still. I don't know if this means that the Lakers and Kobe don't get, and Phil don't get their two more rings, but they don't face that Denver team, mm -hmm. which had Mello and Chauncey. Chauncey doesn't get to have that final all-star uh, career-enhancing act for what he did in Denver with Mello, because Denver's not that Denver. Yeah. That so De Denver is might not be the team where Iverson lands for a couple of years. Yeah. So every again, so many things are altered uh, beyond just the two franchises involved by the decision that was made to choose Milicic at number two. I I'd say the next 10 to 15 years of the NBA, both conferences, two thirds of the league being impacted, uh, everything gets completely changed and it's a different history that we're talking about. Well, and that's a great way to end, but I actually, I'm gonna end with something that I think you're gonna disagree with, but it speaks to how highly I think of Carmelo 
I think, you know, there's some great players. You could stick them on any team. They're going to have an amazing championship career. We know that Shaq, Jordan. I mean, I mean, I have no doubt that if Jordan had been picked by the Blazers, he would have made Clyde Drexler and Jim Paxson cry and, and would have been starting very soon. So this idea of, oh, Drexler would have taken Jordan's minutes. It's like, stop talking. Right. Jordan would have been right. fine wherever right. he was. I think and, one of the biggest things that would have emerged of that was just the difference in Clyde Drexler's career. Does exactly. he still have a Hall of Fame career in a different city? And I love Ooh, that. That's another, uh, yeah. it's another butterfly. Yeah, we could do the Jordan one forever. But, but in, in this one, I'm going to say that other players are, you know, superstars, all-time greats, but we have to say they're situational. Like if they hadn't been in that particular team at that particular moment, we'd remember them like world be free, like a great scorer who didn't quite do it. I think if Carmelo Anthony is in the, given his skills, his current, his, his skills, not, not imagining he developed in some way, but given the skills that we know, if he's on the right team, he's Dirk Nowitzki. He is the best player on a championship team and supported by the Tyson Chandlers. You know, I'm thinking of all those great role players who are just perfect for Dirk on that Mavericks team, the way it was constructed, Jason Terry, et cetera. It's like you give Carmelo that with a great coach and a solid organization. I think he does wonders and we remember his career very differently. Oh, that last the last few things you said, I agree wholeheartedly. Absolutely. Uh, you don't think he's in Dirk's class, though? I don't think he's in Dirk's class. And but and maybe that's because we did see, again, as I said, uh, I believe that had Carmelo been on the Pistons with those other three guys, uh, he would have been to the finals and very possibly would have been the leading scorer and possibly the finals MVP on a team in Detroit that wins the championship. So yes, I have that higher regard for his game and for his career. The thing that I think I might be showing a disagreement was, is that Dirk, that Dallas team, yes, it was perfectly built around Dirk who was in his 13th year at the time, which kind of makes it even more kind of incredible that he was, you know, uh, he was a 13 year veteran uh, who Amazing. wasn't expected to be the go-to guy on another team that went to the finals. Everybody, myself included, thought he had missed his chance back in 06, uh, five, you know, five years earlier. Uh, but that, that, that Mavericks team with Carlisle was perfectly constructed around Dirk but they didn't have any other all-stars. They had three years away from retirement kid who was not the New Jersey Nets kid. They had Jason Terry, who was, boy, was he perfect for that team. But Jason Terry was Jason Terry. He was doing that on a lot of teams, whether they won 30 games or whether they were going to the finals, that was Jason Terry. They had Sean Marion, who I love, and Tyson Chandler, who I love. And even as I'm saying that, I'm like, yeah, that was a really great team. But that was a great team constructed around Dirk. Yes. Mello was the unquestioned go-to guy, possibly top five NBA player in Denver. And granted, he ran into Kobe and couldn't overcome Kobe, but that was only one year. Mello run Denver teams didn't make repeated runs. They had that one great year where they went to the conference finals. And other than that, Mello was putting up, was winning scoring titles. He was putting up his numbers, but Mello being being the franchise player. And again, even before Chauncey, he wasn't playing with bums. He was mellow scoring 30 a game, playing with Andre Miller, Kenyon Martin, and Marcus Camby. If those three guys are not built to be perfect role players around an all-world player, uh, then I don't know who is. But I mean, really, like those are like, I mean, like those are the perfect guys at those positions to play around a one-dimensional, but also multi-dimensional score like Anthony. Then he gets to New York when he's still in his prime. He's in his prime the first few years in New York, and he has some major highlights. Yes, the Knicks were not built to go to the finals, but that those teams with Melo in with his with the ball in his hands. 
missed the playoffs a lot of years that they should have won 48 games and gone to the second round. So it doesn't have to be, it's not championship or bust, but Mello, to my absolute chagrin, of course, lifelong Knicks fan, is that Mello, as your franchise, was not close to the guy to take you there. And the reason that I say ultimately I consider him a notch under Dirk in the hierarchy of NBA players is that while their uh, longevity and scoring numbers are comparable, Dirk as that centerpiece with a revolving cast of supporting players in Dallas by virtue of of Dirk being the Mavericks franchise player, I feel as though they had the potential to be a championship game a team, even all those years they fell short be, be, uh, before ult finally, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting to the mountaintop. Uh, Mello was in a similar position and wasn't able to have that career, didn't have the team success. And I don't feel as though the talent level around Dirk was so much higher than, yeah, yeah. than around Mello. So my, my, feeling about Mello when we talk about his incredible career and I, I think he's a top 50 player in the NBA I do not think he's a top 30 player in the NBA wow. uh, is that by and large Mello had the game of a franchise player but Mello being your franchise player meant that you were not going to be one of the very very best teams in the NBA and that's Damn. not an indictment there's a lot of hall of famers with that career but i think that that absolutely applies to him Ooh. a player that, a player i love from Syria. yeah yeah you made me a little choked up with that last answer cuz it's just like ugh, the gap between what i wanted to see from him and that's frankly olympic mello i think we could have seen in the nba like when the lights were hottest during the olympics we had no better player that that needs to be said by we i mean the united states uh, which i don't usually call we moving on <laughs> mellow uh, mellow on any given game no matter who else was on his team or was on the other team mellow could always look like the best player in the gym could look like the best player in the world and very few players can have that said about them and i think the fact that he does fall rightfully into that group is why there's that extra level of kind of heartache that you're feeling and that a generation of fans are feeling because you know he had the game but ultimately uh uh, ultimately wasn't able to deliver on that and mm. never wound up having that second act where he got there in the twilight as a, a second or third option. Right. Some players get that. He didn't get that. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of, you know, what ifs, but, but, but that's why we're talking because of what if. Yeah. And yeah, of course, uh, you bring up another butterfly effect, just uh, obliquely. Dirk Nowitzki, probably one of the most lopsided draft day trades in history for Robert Tractor Trailer. Absolutely. What to the late Tractor? What does uh, Nowitzki do in the, conf in the cold confines of Milwaukee? These are the questions that plague me. We'll have to take it on another time. That is a true, a true soap opera. It is. If, uh, yeah, if, oh. you, if, you, if, if you have a, a late guest cancellation one day, uh, plug me in and we'll spend time talking about that. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. I may even have to have like uh, one of my uh, future guests, uh, you know, hurt somehow. So we can make sure you get on as they are, as they convalesce. I think um, it's always an appropriate time for a good Tanya Harding. <laughs> I was almost going to say, I was almost going to go there. Um, yeah, I went there. Yes, you did. <laughs> Arya, man, thank you so much for making the time. I really do appreciate it. Dave, thank you for having me. It's always such a blast to talk to you. Indeed. We'll be back right after this quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. 
We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Now... Some choice words. Okay, look, if you want to understand how the U.S. women's national team went from pursuing an unprecedented third consecutive World Cup to losing in the round of 16 on penalty kicks, don't look first at the coach, Vlatko Andonovsky, and his bewildering substitution patterns. Don't look at the players who actually had their best overall match of the tournament. Start where credit is due. The U.S. did not beat itself. The team lost because they ran up against a goalie, Zachira Musevich, who simply would not give an inch. Musevich was doing her best impression of Neo, or more aptly Trinity, in The Matrix, saving 11 shots and facing down a barrage of ceaseless pressure. As Andonovsky said after the match, and it is absolutely true, I am proud of the women on the field. I know we were criticized for the way we played and for different moments in the group stage, I think we came out today and showed the grit, the resilience, the fight. The bravery showed we did everything we could to win the game. And unfortunately, soccer can be cruel sometimes. Indeed. What is clear from this World Cup is not what some pundits will claim. That the USWNT played down to its competition. But it is an understandable conclusion. After all, the United States ends the World Cup on a 238-minute scoring drought, by far its longest in history. But this idea that the USWNT fell to the level of their opponents may have been true in their earlier matches. But it would be deeply unfair and even ignorant to say that the USWNT lost the match against Sweden as if they misplaced a victory instead of the truth. Musevic took it from them. The U.S. gave their all, and against a goalie playing out of her mind, it simply was not enough. This team of aging stars and callow youth could not make it work, and after earlier struggles, it's time to be very self-critical of the USWNT, in a way we have not had to be in the past. Facts are that the USA has had a several decade long head start over much of the rest of the world in the development of their national team because of the landmark 1972 legislation known as Title IX. But now the world is catching up. That fact, and we have to call it a fact at this point, is ultimately why the United States struggled and eventually lost. If the USWNT accepts this as the new reality, then they also need to take more seriously finding talent that doesn't come through the elite pipelines, but spend the money to expand development and teams into underserved communities what the rest of the world is finally starting to do in the women's game in order to find and develop the best. The World Cup is also an occasion to say goodbye to perhaps the most impactful on and off the pitch player of her generation, Megan Rapinoe. The raucous charismatic wizard is now 38 years old and just played in her last match. She also missed a vital penalty kick that could have won it. Penalty kicks are cruel and Mirpino called the miss a sick joke. But that matters little compared to all she has brought to the sport, including being the MVP and top goal scorer of the last World Cup. Mirpino has also never been shy about using her platform to speak out about issues, ranging from racist police violence to the rights of transgender kids to not be marginalized from playing sports. As she once said, I'm a walking protest. Because of this, the right wing a right wing that likes to wear the mantle of being the only true Patriots, is gleefully celebrating Rapinoe's and the USWNT's defeat. Like their orange political leader, they don't care how hypocritical it is for them to root for the fall of their own country. The team's successful fight for equal pay and the actions of some players, like Rapinoe, have made them political punching bags instead of a brilliant dynastic team 
we have been fortunate to watch. A lot of soul searching, a goodbye to the older generation, and almost certainly a new coach will be the plan for the USWNT's future. And despite Sunday's disappointment, it is a bright one. Steel sharpens steel, and the better the rest of the world gets, the greater potential for the USWNT to raise their own game as well. They aren't going anywhere, and the Sophia Smith Revenge Tour at the next World Cup will be something to behold. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Arya Shirazi, for talking 2003 draft. Thank you, Megan Rapino, for your amazing career. Thank you to everybody at the Women's World Cup, amazing us with every match. Big shout out to the countries um, of decolonization. I'm talking, of course, about Nigeria, who is terrific. Uh, Jamaica, terrific. Uh, South Africa, so impressive. And Morocco. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. The sport's on the rise, and that is something to celebrate. Yo, everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Shout out to my producer, David Digaboo. We are out of here. Peace.